Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Trade wars are good and easy to win. That was President Trump's famous tweet just over a year ago when he announced tariffs on steel and aluminum from China and other countries. There have been plenty of twists and turns in the trade wars since then, but who's winning? Well, trade lawyers, definitely. And yes, trade reporters. Our world trade team here at Bloomberg has doubled in the past year. But when it comes to countries, economic theory says no one really wins a trade war. And if you look at the way the trade battles have hurt exports in China and raised costs and uncertainty for US businesses, you'd be inclined to agree. But we might be looking in the wrong place. In a minute, I'm going to talk to Bloomberg's Asian economy columnist, Dan Moss, about the impact of trade wars and tougher global competition on Asia. But first, our Southeast Asian economies reporter, Michelle Jamrisco, has been to one country that does seem to be winning Donald Trump's trade war. This is Vietnam, where motorbikes race through the streets of the capital, Hanoi. Forty years after the war with America, the Vietnamese have the most favorable opinion of the U.S. out of any foreign populace, according to the Pew Research Center. And Donald Trump may just have given them another reason to like America, in the form of his trade war with China. That's because the tariff battle is giving a boost to Vietnam's economy, which was already one of the world's fastest growing, thanks in part to foreign businesses looking for cheaper factories. My colleague Nguyen Nguyen and I visited Chinois, a furniture maker in Hanoi, to get a first-hand look at how a Vietnamese business is reaping the benefits. Chinois started as a bicycle company in 1980 and in the decades since has evolved into a big brand within Vietnam for home, office, and even the seats in parliament. But it also has a solid portfolio of longtime international partners like IKEA and Toyota, a family that's growing in part thanks to those tariffs. Here's CEO Lei Dui Eng. We expect new orders to increase a lot due to the trade war, but it's hard to quantify it right now. There are more companies getting in touch with us to switch from China to our products. But in order to turn them into real contracts, we still have a lot to do and many things to change. It's quite difficult to compete with China in terms of quantity and cost. Here on Ang's factory floor is where that struggle to compete with China is playing out, and already with some success. You can tell Ang really wants to prioritize not just quantity, but quality. He aims to compete with Japanese craftsmanship. Very much in each of these buildings, you can smell the burnt metal and see the sparks flying. Workers diligently at each of their stations in different zones, organized, as Mr. Ain said, in a system that they uh, took from Toyota. Ain, an average-sized, boyish-looking man with a big smile, proudly escorts us around his village of factory buildings about an hour outside downtown Hanoi. We're just the latest onlookers. In the past three months, he's been visited by about 10 potential new clients who are considering moving orders from China to Xinhua. They've come from all over, both the U.S. and China, as well as South Korea and Japan, and also from much further away, like Romania. 
He is almost sure the fresh business will help him smash a 20% growth target for 2019. His point is driven home during our tour as a South Korean businessman walks by in a hard hat, browsing products he'd like to sell to the U.S. Aang pauses his tutorial about how Shunhua has boosted productivity by shaving seconds off the process of bending the initial metal. He points out the latest visitor strolling the floors, excitedly interjecting in English. Italy from Korea. He want to uh, order this, this product, and I go to America. For right now, Aang seems most focused on a new Canadian client, manufacturer-distributor Kanglam, whose executives are scrapping their Chinese sourcing and looking instead to order from Shunhua, including cabinets they'd ship to U.S. customers. Aang says this is exactly the type of order that his business has been working toward as they buy new machinery and become more efficient on the factory floor. The most difficult things now is increasing quality and ensuring good quality of our products while trying to reduce cost to meet clients' requirements and to be more competitive. The gains in productivity have allowed Aang to raise salaries about 8% each year for the past three years, he says, more than double the rate of inflation. One of his workers, 46-year-old Ha Van Tan, has been at Chinois for 22 years and boasts that the recent bump in business allowed him to buy a new motorbike for his family last year. My wife is much happier since I got higher income from the company, so we have a better life now. I also have better health as the working environment here has become better than it was previously. Aang showed off the cabinets in test phase that Shunhua is perfecting to close the deal with Kanglam. Later, he offers up a more concrete example of where his company has already gained from the trade war. IKEA has done business with Shunhua for more than 17 years. Last year, the Swedish furniture giant gave Shunhua some more business by switching from a Chinese vendor that could hike prices due to tariffs. IKEA began buying these 20-cent metal parts from Shunhua, which Aang pulled off a newer machine on our tour. I met Sebastian Eckert, the World Bank's lead Vietnam economist, in an eighth-floor meeting room that overlooks an especially buzzy intersection, with tourists and teens snapping photos in front of Hanoi's historic opera house across the way. Eckert put things into perspective. Vietnam, of course, um, over, you know, even before the recent tensions, uh, in many ways um, has picked up uh, uh, activities where China basically moved, moved, moved on and moved out, right? So a lot of the, the FDI that we are seeing actually is, is, is relocation from China, and I think there's, uh, the, the recent tensions, they probably accelerate that to some extent. That's a key word I've been hearing a lot, accelerate. The penalties targeted at China and the broader demand slowdown there have given an extra nudge in Vietnam's favor. Not only that, the government is loosening its grip on commerce. At the start of 2016, Shunhua, then a state-owned company, was fully privatized, and now Ain owns a 20% stake in the firm. Eckert sees Vietnamese agencies cleaning up regulations, brainstorming on tough reforms like intellectual property rights, and adding more free trade agreements to their impressive lineup. It's all earned them better spots in international rankings like the World Bank's Ease of Doing Business Index and the World Economic Forum's Competitiveness Index. 
now consumption has really come back. And I think that's uh, very healthy and it's something that is structural that reflects a rising middle class, increasingly urbanized country, uh, healthy wage growth, uh, more disposable income, uh, not only in a small fraction of households, but very broad-based, uh, very inclusive growth, of course. And, and I think that's fueling a, a healthy domestic economy. And I think that's, that's important. Ng himself is an example of the Vietnamese affection for America in a country where lingering hostile sentiment from the war is largely confined to museums. Ng's son is studying marketing in Indiana, part of a growing pattern as Vietnam ranks number seven in the world in sending students to the States. The Vietnamese hold a much different perspective on China. They talk about a lack of trust etched in a thousand years of history with their communist neighbor, and almost nine in 10 have an unfavorable view of China, according to the same Pew survey. But for all the positive signs, businesses aren't getting too excited about the opportunities that might flow from the trade war. For one thing, companies know they can't cut out the second biggest market in the world. In fact, Ng says Xinhua still needs to source some materials, including steel, from China, in order to continue producing according to customer preferences. Corruption also remains an issue. Infrastructure still lags in some ways, and paperwork can bog down newcomers. Moreover, Vietnam is vulnerable to international criticism for imprisoning dissidents and bloggers who challenge the government's one-party socialist rule. And of course, if the U.S.-China trade war worsens or goes global, that's going to be bad for everyone, especially trade-heavy economies like Vietnam. But Aang thinks Xinhua and his country will rise to the challenge. We see many opportunities in both domestic and international market. The trade war is bringing more business for sure, while there are some potential areas in the domestic market that we haven't tapped yet. Ng talks about creating a so-called smart factory with more robots and advanced machines. He aims to double sales in the next five years. For now, the trade war is helping to keep Ng's plans on track. For Bloomberg News, this is Michelle Jamersko. So that was uh, Michelle Jamrisco. I'm very pleased to talk now to Daniel Moss, who will be familiar to some of you, uh, long-time listeners to the Benchmark podcast. He used to run the economics coverage here at Bloomberg. He's done a lot of other things uh, for Bloomberg, but most importantly for our purposes, uh, for the last few months, he's been based in Asia as the Asian economy columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Dan, thanks very much uh, for coming back on the podcast. Steph, great to be here. So we were just hearing about this quite positive story about Vietnam potentially, at least in the short term, being a winner from the trade wars. Uh, is this something that you see uh, generally when you think about the impact on Southeast Asia of the immediate sort of US-China wrangling over trade, uh, that there are some countries that are actually benefiting as well as the losses we see? Or is it primarily a negative story when you think about the impact of the trade wars on the region? It is overall a broadly negative story with a couple of exceptions. And Vietnam is one of them, certainly in the short term. I was in Vietnam late last year, and the place was getting quite a lot of positive buzz from foreign businesses who had set up there. Late last year, the government lifted restrictions on how much foreigners can own of huge swathes of industry. However, and this is the key caveat when you're talking about Vietnam, it remains a one-party communist state 
and so-called sensitive areas, they are still off limits to foreign control. Vietnam is a big country, but it's not so big. It has relatively warm relations uh, with the US and with Western Europe. That, of course, can all go wrong, though. Its system of government is not dramatically different from China's. And Steph, as you know from your own working experiences, when emerging markets let foreign investors have more and more of a say in the economic life of their country, governments also surrender a certain amount of control. Some systems of government and individual states are more comfortable with that than others. For now, it's probably a bargain that works for Vietnam. How long it works remains to be seen. I suspect there's a little bit of crush to this. Uh, whether it's a long-term player remains to be seen. I mean, it's one thing that uh, certainly we think about when we look at what you might call the Asian economic model, uh, which was so uh, focused on trade and exporting to the rest of the world. We know that that sort of the path that China took and that other countries before it took is going to be much harder now looking ahead. I mean, the rest of the world's a bit more wise to that approach, um, but it's just a much more competitive environment. I mean, not just Vietnam, but if you're sort of stepping back and thinking about Southeast Asia as a whole and the Asian export economies, you know, how well do you think countries are, are grappling with uh, moving away from it or needing to find a different kind of economic model? They do need to find a different type of economic model. Some of them are pinning hopes on their own middle class. But just to be clear about this, a move away from exports is essentially a move away from the model that got them where they are. You know, we're all familiar with the success stories of some of these Asian economies. You know, tigers was a term very much on vogue in the 80s and 90s. You don't hear that so much anymore. They did really, really well out of exports, and part of that was an export supply chain that snaked through China and has recently served China as well as serving the US. Now, to attract all the multinationals that were part of those supply chains, they needed to uh, make their economies more open, they needed to invest more money in education, they needed to keep up the momentum, move up the value chain. Now, if you take away exports and if you at least subtract from China's role in that global supply chain, the model that got many of these East Asian countries where they are, well, you know, got another model? <laughs> I don't know that they necessarily have a convincing new one. And I guess one of the, I mean, one part, one big part of the model uh, the last few years has just been dependence on China. I mean, selling selling into that China growth story. We think a lot about the impact of trade wars, and it's understandable because it's such a uh, it's a change to have this kind of protectionist mood affecting relations between the you know two of the biggest economies in the world. But if you're sitting in Asia, you're looking at Asian economies all around you. What are you worried about most? Are you worried most about the trade war, or are you worried most about the slowing of growth in China? Because that's such a big part of this year's story as well. You know, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'll be worrying about uh, the trade war and the impact of that. But, you know, as I wake up in the months uh, and perhaps the year to come, I'll be worried that economies aren't thinking enough about the structural slowdown and the structural change 
uh, in the Chinese economy. This is an economy that Donald Trump notwithstanding is becoming more and more driven by its own domestic consumer market, uh, by technology. China is not going to grow at 6% forever. It didn't grow at 10% forever. You know, we need to get used to growth of 5 point something, 4 point something, 3 point something. You know, the OECD has done some modelling. Capital economics, among other firms, have done some modelling. As China's economy continues to mature, you know, it's going to look actually a lot like the US and to a degree Western Europe in terms of its rates of growth. Now, for all the people, Steph, that we've heard say, well, the biggest thing in my lifetime has been the super fabulous rise of China. That's great. That's true. But how much consideration is given to a China which looks normal? That is the really long-term fundamental challenge. Being close to China was once an, an unalloyed good. How much longer will that be true? Again, got a new model. Uh, it, it makes me think, I and mean, it's interesting because you and I both have a sort of longer term perspective on this, although you had a much uh, deeper understanding of the region. I mean, I think, you know, you've just moved back to Asia after many years away. And I, I think the last time you were there, you should remind us, the last time you were there was in the late 90s. That was when I was making flying visits to Asia during the Asia financial crisis when I was working at the US Treasury working for Larry Summers. So of course, I got a rather crazed picture of these countries when they were going through this absolute worst moment of crisis. You were sitting there able to look at it a bit more calmly. What struck you most? You've been back for a few months now. How has that long-term story of China influence and the development of the region played out relative to what you might have thought when you left? Yeah, so I moved to Singapore three months ago. The last time I lived in Southeast Asia, I was the bureau chief of Bloomberg in Malaysia from 96 to 98. So definitely that was a period of economic and political upheaval in the region. Having been away for two decades, I expected, Steph, that when I returned, China's footprint would be everywhere. You know, writ large, writ small, writ medium, you name it. The thing that surprised me most as I talk to people at central banks here and read more and more about monetary policy in Asia, the more it's apparent to me this is still largely about the Federal Reserve. This is still a dollar zone. Is China's footprint in the region expanding uh, in other economic ways? For sure. Is China funding a lot of infrastructure in this region? For sure. Is the Belt and Road Initiative having an impact? For sure. But when it comes to the monetary realm, this is still a dollar game. And whenever there's a Federal Open Market Committee meeting, for two days, there's just this constant blitz. It's like I was back in DC at a Fed lockup. Uh, People's Bank of China is barely mentioned. For me, that was a surprise. Now, culturally and politically, things have advanced you know, significantly. I'm talking to you right now from Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, which, as you know, was the epicenter in Southeast Asia of the financial crisis two decades ago. Uh, it ultimately became a political crisis and in some ways a sectarian crisis. Uh, Indonesia is in full bloom 
as a democracy as it prepares to vote this month. The country's only been voting directly for president since 2004, and democracy is a great thing. We all support that. But it does make it harder sometimes to get a handle on the debate, and it can also uncork some sentiments that authoritarian rulers had papered over. No, I think that's, uh, I mean, it's fascinating and uh, not necessarily what we hear all the time when we think about the, the rise of China and, and how, much, how dominant it's become. Some things have moved very quickly, but some of these long-term aspects, certainly about the role of the dollar, we know could take a lot longer. I seem to remember, I think the, the UK was surpassed by the US in terms of the size of its economy in the late, in the 1880s, 1890s. It took another 60 years before the pound was really displaced by the dollar as the global currency. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised. But it's, uh, it's interesting to hear that you've come all that way, Dan, uh, moving from the US only to discover that it really is still all about the Fed. I appreciate that we got that insight. Um, thanks very much for joining us. I know we're going to have you back on the show very soon. Thanks, Steph. Looking forward to it. So I'm joined now by someone who's also about to move from the US, Brendan Murray, who until recently was managing editor for the US economic coverage here at Bloomberg, but is now our world trade czar. We've decided trade had become so important to Bloomberg, we didn't just have to report it, but we needed to install an autocrat to keep the show on the road. So Brendan, welcome. I wanted to chat to you partly to tell everyone that we have a global trade czar now, but also because a news story out of Geneva caught my eye, which I don't say very often. It's the news that the World Trade Organization, based in Geneva, has just published its first ruling on national security. Now, Brendan, this was about a trade dispute between Russia and Ukraine, which might be quite important for those two countries, but it's not necessarily going to be something the world has to pay attention to. Why did we make a bit of a fuss out of it here at Bloomberg? Well, this ruling is going to have big implications for the Trump administration's trade agenda around the world. Essentially, uh, Trump is saying that uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs that it, it is applying on uh, a number of countries around the world are justified for national security reasons. So the, this ruling out of the WTO will invite some disputes from, uh, from around the world, from countries like Canada, uh, China, and the EU. So he's always said, so the administration has always said WTO shouldn't be getting itself involved in this. And in fact, even the WTO has sort of said in the past they didn't particularly want to get involved in national security things. But if you look at the ruling itself, the WTO seems to have said, yeah, Russia's claim of national security concerns was right in this case. I think they were, they were, they've been putting um, restrictions on the goods going from Ukraine to other countries, but through Russia. And because of the sort of conditions, relations between Russia and Ukraine, Russia had said there's national security concerns, why it was doing this, and the WTO has agreed with that. So so why should the administration really worry about it if it's going to be on, on Donald Trump's side? Well, they should worry about it because they're probably on shakier ground calling uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs justified for national security reasons. In the Russia-Ukraine case, there was a an armed conflict going on uh, when Russia installed these these restricted trade measures. The U.S. Uh, doesn't have the same argument that there's an actual military conflict going on that, that we need these tariffs for national security reasons. 
so the definition of, uh, of of trying to prove that these are needed for national security that the administration is probably hoping that there's a, a looser a looser definition of basically this could open up the floodgates to for other countries to say oh well we have we have national security interests in 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 maintaining our steel industries and so you could you can see the sort of uh, domino effect that that this could have what about the, what's the timing on that? Do we think if uh, I know that sometimes things take an awful long time to go through the WTO, but are we expecting a ruling on any of these things? Nothing, nothing in the near term. Uh, that's the, that's one of the uh, potential outcomes of this particular case is that this could be appealed and and it could be tied up for years. Um, hmm. You know, that's uh, probably what Donald Trump would be would be hoping happens uh, if if it does actually come to the, a ruling for national security against the U.S. You know, I feel kind of sorry for the World World Trade Organization. They're sort of damned if they do and damned if they don't. If they don't get involved in these kind of issues, then you could imagine, as you say, more and more countries going around them and saying everything's a national security concern. And then the WTO becomes irrelevant. But if it's relevant and then hated enough for President Trump to take the US out, that's a pretty bad outcome as well. Who knew that world trade negotiations could be so exciting? You must be very excited to take on your new role. Congratulations, Brendan, and thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. Please join us next week for another episode about the forces shaping the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website or app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so it could reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also follow me on at my Stephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Michelle Jamrisco and Win Yu Win was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Nasreen Saria and Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Dan Moss, Brendan Murray and Hung Trong. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.